Hi, everyone. My name is Michelle from The Table in Uniontown. Thanks for tuning into our podcast this week. We're happy you're here. This is the live recording from this Sunday sermon. We're currently in our sermon series, You've Got Mail, where we discuss the seven letters to the churches in Revelation. We hope that as you listen, you'll more deeply understand the truth of God's word and how much he loves you. Let's jump in. Welcome. You've got mail. Some of you guys, some of you guys started to miss dial-up during this service. Have you thought about going back to a landline? Maybe getting a AOL Instant Messenger screen name. I don't know. Those were those are simpler times. We need to we need to do like a Facebook post or something in relation to this series where we just let you confess what your AOL Instant Messenger screen name was. I think. I think that'd be really freeing for a lot of you, and uh, and embarrassing and awesome. So uh, I my my first one was J Nigro ninety nine, because the year was nineteen ninety nine. Then two thousand came and I was like, oh no, <laughs> I didn't think this through. I got to create a new one. So, well, this morning we'll be looking uh, once again at a letter uh, to a church. In the book of Revelation, this time it's a letter whose destination is Thyatira. Uh, it's in Revelation 2, 18 through 29. I'll give you a moment to find that in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen behind me. And if you don't have a Bible at all or one that you understand, uh, I would love to give you one. See me afterwards. Write to the angel of the church in Thyatira. Thus says the Son of God, the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like fine bronze. I know your works, your love, your faithfulness, service, and endurance. I know that your last works are greater than the first, but I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. Look, I will throw her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great affliction. Unless they repent of her works, I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who examines minds and hearts. And I will give to each of you according to your works. I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who haven't known the so-called secrets of Satan, as they say, I'm not putting any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over the nations. And he will rule them with an iron scepter and he will shatter them like pottery. Just as I have received this from my Father, I will also give him the morning star. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. 
So this is uh, the fourth letter out of seven in our series here on the letters to the church in Revelation. I, I, hope, I hope that you're kind of engaged with this series so far. I hope you're following as this one really takes us back 2,000 years uh, almost. And we have to dig, uh, dig just culturally into the world that, that John the Revelator lives in. I, I hope it's showing you this, this sermon series as we kind of go through this. I hope it's showing you the book of Revelation can be accessible and that you can read it on your own and you can begin to understand it. And I hope that the warnings in these letters are penetrating our own hearts, warning us too, warning us as individuals, warning us as a church. I think these letters are written to churches that that are a little bit older than us, a little bit older than uh, two years. And yet, like, what a blessing to be warned early on. No doubt we'll need to be warned 30 years from now, but what a blessing to be warned now that maybe we can avoid some of the mistakes that these churches made. Write to the angel of the church in Thyatira, thus says the Son of God. This is, this is the only reference in Revelation to Jesus as the Son of God, if you can believe it. This probably is to make clear who the reference in Psalm 2 speaks about later in the letter. Uh, the Son of God is identified as one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like fine bronze. This is the one whose eyes they see everything and for whom nothing is hidden. And these bronze feet are ones that are firm and stable. Uh, maybe a juxtaposition to the Christians in these churches that are being tossed about, blown every which way by deceptive teaching and immorality. Um, maybe a juxtaposition to the rest of the world outside of the church uh, who have these other gods, these pagan gods, and who make uh, gods out of their emperors and political leaders that... Uh, those gods cannot give them a steadiness of heart and, and those gods will, will fail them because they're not the true God who can only be known uh, through and as Jesus. One scholar remarks that Thyatira is the least known, least important, and least remarkable of the destinations of these letters in Revelation. So um, put that on your, on your tourism page, Thyatira, right? Uh, Witherington calls it an unimportant city of artisans and merchants. And as such, it was full of the trade guilds that we spoke about last week. If, if you remember, if you were here last week or if you watched online or listened to our podcast, uh, if, you, if you don't have the podcast subscribed to, this is your chance right now to do it. Uh, if, if you remember, you couldn't participate in your trade in the city without becoming part of a trade guild. And you couldn't be part of a trade guild without taking part in a little religious ceremony uh, at the beginning of your meeting to pagan gods. And so as Christians, of course, you'd be committing this grievous sin by bowing the knee to another god. And if they didn't do it, though, if these Christians didn't do it, it would mean uh, they were in a place of great economic pressure. No bowing the knee meant no trade guild. No trade guild meant no opportunity to work. No opportunity to work meant no money. And no money, as you know, means the inability to buy food, among other things. It's a hard life to be a Christian in Thyatira, much like it was in the other cities we've discussed so far. Just hard to be a Christian in the Roman Empire at the end of the first century. And so then Jesus says to this specific group of Christians in this city, I know your works. Your love, your faithfulness, or, or your faith, maybe uh, better translated, your love, your faith, your service, your endurance, 
right? These Christians, they love one another. They, they are, are, in a sense, keeping the faith. They serve. They, they endure amid great, great pressure, even, even facing potential imprisonment, death. This is a great list of attributes to have Jesus use to describe you. Very good stuff to hear from him. If he was saying these things to me personally, I'd be thrilled, right? And then he even says, your, I know that your last works, your most recent works, are greater than the first. This is like the opposite of, of week one in the series, right? The Ephesians. He told the Ephesians, go back to what you were doing before. You are getting worse. You had more love before, for the church in Thyatira, the, the Thyatirans, right? Is that, we say Ephesians, but I don't know. The Thyatira, last week I was like, the, the Pergamumian, Pergamumians? I don't know. But these people in Thyatira, they are actually like a, a fine wine getting better with age. Way to go, church, right? I'd much rather Jesus tell me I'm trending holier than like trending unholier and need to backtrack, right? Hopefully our lives are getting holier and holier. Hopefully our lives are getting more and more in step with God's spirit. Hopefully our lives are more and more in line with God's best for us. I know some people who just seem so steady and it just, it seems like that. They just getting holier and holier. Their, their most recent works are better than the ones before, right? Then I feel like there are some of us who are just strugglers. And for, for some of us strugglers, though, I think there are people who would look at our lives and who would see in us what we don't see in ourselves, who would say, you are growing, you are maturing, you are, you're more like Christ than you were when I met you, more like Christ than you were 10 years ago, more like Christ than you were five years ago, more like Christ even than you were last year. I think that in these letters, as a whole, there's this overlooked principle of just having these I see in you conversations. Heard someone uh, I, I speak at a conference once, having a hard time remembering who it was. I think maybe it was Dave Ferguson. I don't know. It doesn't matter. But he stressed this idea of having these I see in you conversations. This is what I see in you. This is what, what I see happening in your life. This is what I see in your marriage. This is what I see in the way that you talk. Or maybe even more in line with what he was saying, um, it was something like, here's what I see in you. Like, here's what I see you could do. I see this in you that you could teach. I see that you could lead a small group, that you could start a Bible study, that, that you would be great with our nursery kids, that you could share your faith. I see that in you. Whatever it might be, Jesus, the one with the eyes like a fiery flame with that 2020 vision, something that I cannot even fathom, he's having the I see in you conversations with these churches. And while Jesus might not have someone write a letter to us, his spirit inside his people can still point out things in us today where he is at work. So as a church, please don't always let the conversation be light. Don't always let the conversation be light. I, I want to talk as much as the rest of you do this morning about how Oregon beat the brakes off Colorado yesterday. I do. I know you all are dying to talk to me about it, and I would love to hold court about that after church. But we have to go deeper than that. What do you see in your brothers and sisters sitting here this morning? Don't let a moment pass where you could be 
pointing out something in their life that, that they have no idea is happening, that they don't see in themselves potential that's untapped because they don't know they have it. You have no idea the effect that an I see this in you sort of conversation could have on someone. And Jesus is doing that. I see this in you. Jesus is the ultimate encourager. He's encouraged churches just in these first few weeks that in my book are doing things that are like really bad, right? Like some really bad stuff. And he's encouraging them. He's still pointing out the bad, but he's encouraging them. Jesus is so much more gracious than I am. I need to continue to sit at his feet and learn his ways. And then Jesus says the dreaded line, you've come to expect it by now, but I have this against you. It's that line that we cringe when we hear it because if it were directed at us or our church, it would be so heartbreaking. I have this against you. And what does he have against them? You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat meat sacrifice to idols. So there's a lot to explain here. You might think, hmm, Jezebel, Jezebel. I've heard that name before. Sounds familiar. Where have I heard that name before? Jezebel was the name of King Ahab's idolatrous queen. She was a wicked, evil woman. You can read about her in 1 Kings. And the influence of Jezebel, the queen, in 1 Kings brought worship of Baal, of Asheroth. He brought, she brought that into Israel alongside the worship of Yahweh. So basically, you can worship the gods of your culture, make sure you fit in. You still sprinkle a little Yahweh worship, right, into, and everything's going to be good. Everybody's happy, right? So, that, so, so then what's the connection with that queen Jezebel and this woman in Thyatira? That woman, as John describes her in some translations, she calls herself a prophetess, probably so that she can demand some respect for authority. And then when she has that respect, she teaches and deceives God's people to commit sexual immorality and eat meat sacrificed to idols. The first Jezebel wasn't a, a prophetess, but she sponsored 850 false prophets to try to kill God's true prophets. She didn't necessarily commit actual adultery, but led Israel to be spiritually unfaithful. So how does that connect? Well, this original Jezebel is about worshiping false gods, right? But this new Jezebel type, she deceives her servants to be act, like actually sexually immoral and eat meat sacrificed to idols and, and in doing so be spiritually adulterous as well. It's interesting, Nancy Guthrie in her book on Revelation points out that the false deities the original Jezebel led Israel to, to worship would have involved sexual liaisons with temple prostitutes. And the same is new, the same is true of the new Jezebel. Now this, this new Jezebel, what is she really pointing the Christians in Thyatira to do? It's so much of what we talked about last week. She's pointing them to go ahead, join the trade guilds. Join these trade guilds. You have to make money, right? And if you have to bow to a false god or two along the way, it's okay. It's not like you're denying Jesus. You're just participating in the culture. Jesus wouldn't want you to starve after all, would he? You have to work, right? If a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. Oh yeah, and meat sacrificed to idols in the temple, again, just don't deny Jesus and it's fine. And yeah, you're going to have to sleep with temple prostitutes. It's part of the culture. It's just part of the culture. It's just who Rome is and what Romans do. You know, when in Rome, they say, right? So just do it 
have a good attitude. Don't deny Jesus, of course. He's in your heart. He's in, he's in your heart, but it doesn't have to affect everything you do. You can trust me after all. I'm a prophetess, right? I know these things. Sounds pretty similar to the OG Jezebel of the Old Testament. We know what Jesus has against her, of course. We, we can hear that and we can see all sorts of red flags, things that Jesus would have a problem with. But what does Jesus have against this church and Thyatira as a whole? They tolerate her. They tolerate her. There's some level of of live and let live in this church that Jesus is just absolutely not having. We live in an age where tolerance is king. And and we have to understand the difference between what happens in the church and what happens in, in a secular society. In society, where we are existing with people who don't know the Lord, we understand that they're not going to walk in God's ways. Why would they? They don't, they don't follow Jesus, and so we're tolerant. Not that we think walking in a way contrary to the, the way of Jesus is good or right, but we know that God changes people from the inside out, and so we pray, and we wait, and we evangelize, and, and when God saves someone, then we see their life change, right? That's how this works. When someone, for example, in our culture is sleeping around who doesn't know Jesus, they have all sorts of reasons why they do it. It's fun. I wanted to. It made me forget about X, Y, and Z that is hurting me. I want to feel loved. I want to feel close to somebody. So on and so forth. And if you were to tell them that they shouldn't do that, they would likely not appreciate that. And to say you shouldn't do that because the Bible says not to is not going to register for that person, of course, because the Bible is not an authority to them yet. They don't sit under the authority of God's word. So in a way, in that way, we are tolerant. We pray, we wait, we hope that God will do a work in their life where they will be changed from the inside and they'll start to follow Jesus walking in his ways, right? That's, that's a kind of tolerance. That's a good tolerance. But Jesus here is talking to a church. He's talking to believers. He's talking to Christians. And he's saying, there's this woman in your midst and she's teaching people to walk in spiritual adultery to save their own skin. And essentially, she is claiming she's a prophetess, and as such is claiming she does this stuff under my authority. People are being led astray. They're being led away from me, and you tolerate her? See, this is where tolerance is not acceptable. This is where tolerance might be veiled as love and peace and live and let live, and it's so beautiful. And who am I to tell her she's wrong? The Lord will sort it out eventually, right? Right, like this prophetess has her own beliefs about how to live and how to be a Christian in the world. And who are we to tell her that, that she's wrong and, and we're right after all? And Jesus says, no, you have the scriptures, you have the Holy Spirit. You have a precedent for her behavior in Queen Jezebel. And yet you sit by and you watch and you say nothing. That is what I have against you. And to do that, isn't love. It's hate. How much must you hate a person to watch them walk away from Jesus and say nothing? How much must you hate a person to let them lead people astray, something they'll have to answer to God for one day and say nothing? 
How much must you hate the people she leads astray by not trying to reason with them, not, not telling them that it's unacceptable, not warning them of the danger of walking away from Jesus towards other gods, just watching them live in sexual immorality and, and ultimately just continue to claim Jesus' name to ease their own conscience. They will have to answer to God for that one day. Does that kind of tolerance sound like love? You tolerate what she's doing, and this is what I have against you. Tolerance can be good, and tolerance can be bad. You can live in a society where people have different understandings of what is true, and you cannot freak out on them and have civil discourse, and that is beautiful and good, and that is tolerance. If someone is hurting another person, tolerance is bad. Someone needs to step in for that person, right? Tolerance isn't a virtue in and of itself. It depends on what you're tolerating. And in the church, tolerating this Jezebel is not a virtue. It is a grievous sin. Jesus comments further on Jezebel in a way that might have shocked us during the reading earlier. He says, I gave her time to repent. That's called grace, by the way. He didn't instantly go to extreme actions. He gave her time to repent. Yet she does not, present tense, want to repent of her sexual immorality. Now it's interesting, Nancy Guthrie points out again, by the way, if you're like kind of getting into this Revelation stuff a little bit and you want like a sound, accessible book on it, she wrote a book called Blessed last year and it's, a, it's kind of just walks you through Revelation. It's very accessible. It's not like scholarly. I haven't read the whole thing, but I, I would recommend that resource, Blessed by Nancy Guthrie. But, but she points out uh, in that book that this Jezebel, she's part of the church in Thyatira, and she could very well just be sitting in the crowd as this letter is read. Can you just picture it? She's just sitting there. And she's not named by name, of course, like her name's not Jezebel, but I'm guessing people are getting the idea of who is being referred to by Jesus. Like she's probably not a low profile kind of person. And then Jesus says, look, I will throw her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great affliction. And everyone in the congregation turns their heads, right? <laughs> Waiting on her to like just fall over or something, right? Jesus says he's going to strike her with a sickness. And if she doesn't repent, she's going to find, and she does find herself gravely ill, it will prove God's word true. You, you'd love like Revelation part two, right? Where you get like a follow-up to how these churches responded. Wouldn't you love that? I wish, I wish they'd uncover that one day. Would love to know which churches repented and who doubled down. I'd love to know, did Jezebel get sick or did she like hear this and say, wait a second, right? Interesting, too, that the word here, sickbed, is used. She's leading people to go to bed with people they shouldn't, and yet she will find herself in a bed of a whole different sort. Those who are with her will be thrown into great affliction or distress. We don't know if that means emotional distress. We don't know if that means persecution. Um, if that means the stress of seeing their prophetess in, in that condition and her sickbed, we're not sure what it means, but something unpleasant will occur if they do not repent. He says, I will strike her children dead, more literally with a contagious disease. I will strike them with a contagious disease. Now that might shock you a little bit as you hear that. You, you might think, what gives Jesus? 
what happened to the guy, you know, like pictured in like the church he grew up in with like the kiddos on his lap, right? Or like maybe you've seen the picture of him with the lamb over his shoulder, right? What happened to the nice Jesus who is gentle and lowly? Well, this Jesus knows something that I think you know, but he knows more than you just how true it is. No affliction in this life can compare to being separated from him forever. When you read these lines, you should see a great deal of love. I gave her time to repent. She didn't respond. Then what? I'll have to throw her into a sickbed. Why? Because here's the scandalous grace of Jesus. Even though she's led a ton of people astray, led a ton of people away from Jesus, led a ton of people to compromise, led them to sexual sin, guess what? This Jezebel is still beloved by God. And so if God has to prophesy to the prophetess, the false prophetess, that a sickness is coming her way if she doesn't repent, and she doesn't repent and then she does get sick, this sickness will be nothing compared to being separated from God forever. And if she repents, if she turns, if she tells people that she was wrong the whole time, if she follows Jesus again, guess what? That little episode of sickness will be a distant memory in eternity with God. God wants none to perish. God wants none to perish, not even the biggest culprits of leading people away from him. Every human is beloved by God. So afflicting these people is a drastic measure to hopefully get them to repent. But not only that, he says, then all the churches will know I am the one who examines hearts and minds. It's not these other gods that you're getting cozy with in pagan temples. It's Jesus. Jesus is the only one that knows your heart and mind. And this Jesus knowing your heart is a fearful thing unless you are his. If you are his, washed in his blood, then you've been given a new heart and a new standing before God. But he knows your heart. He he knows if you love him. You, You cannot fool God. You cannot fool the Son of God. He knows if you're compromised. He knows. And he says, and I will give to each of you according to your works. I don't want you to be confused here. God does not save you based on your works. If, if he did, no one would be saved. He saves us based on the finished work of, of Christ on the cross, and that is it. However, there's some sense in the Bible that you cannot avoid that you will be rewarded based on what you've done. When everything comes to light one day, God will consider what you've done. Now, here's what I firmly believe about heaven. You cannot be jealous in heaven. And you cannot feel shame in heaven. So if there's a scenario where your works are made known, you will not be ashamed of the bad if you are in Christ. You will revel in the grace of God that covered it to bring a sinner like you home. And when you hear of other people's good works, maybe better works than yours, and you see them rewarded, and and you see what they receive, you will not be jealous. You will praise God for the work that they did for the kingdom. Billy Graham will one day receive much more than me in terms of a reward for his service to God. And I will not envy him. I will thank God that I am with him. God, not Billy Graham. I don't really know if I want to hang out with Billy Graham, to be honest. I mean, he's probably fine. I just, you know. Uh, You get it. 
He's not what he's in heaven. He's fine. He's gone. <laughs> oh, sorry, Billy Graham. And then he's <laughs> if you're watching, not online, but like watching. And then he says <laughs> uh, none of that was in my notes. And then he says to the rest of them in Thyatira, the ones who didn't bend a knee, the ones who didn't compromise, the ones who didn't follow Jezebel, the ones who haven't known the so-called secrets of Satan. Now, what does that mean? A prophet or a prophetess relies on secret knowledge given to them from God, direct revelation. It may have been that this false prophetess offered secret knowledge, even claiming that that God revealed to her, allegedly, that assimilating with the culture and worshiping false gods, becoming part of these trade guilds, that that was actually okay with the Lord. And Jesus says, that did not come from me. That came from someone else. But if you didn't fall for that, if you, you didn't give in to that, then I am not putting anything else on you other than the same thing we've said every week so far. Just keep going. Just keep going. To the one who overcomes and keeps my deeds, to the one who doesn't give in, doesn't cave to the pressures of life in a pagan society and who also walks in my ways, doesn't just keep from denying me but also lives the life of a follower of Jesus, right? To, to that kind of person, I will give authority over the nations. And then he quotes Psalm 2, which we talked about this summer. He will, he will rule them with an iron scepter. He will shatter them like pottery. The psalm is talking about the Son of God. And so Jesus here is saying, this rule belongs to me, and I will share it with you. Just as I've received this rule from my Father, it's now mine to give, says Jesus. And also I will give him, the one who conquers and keeps my works to the end, the morning star. To the Romans, the morning star is Venus, and it's a symbol of victory and sovereignty. But what they thought that they would obtain, these Romans would obtain from their pagan rituals, jokes on them, it can only be obtained through Jesus. And what the Romans thought that they would get, actually, these Christians who they were oppressing, who they were imprisoning, who they were keeping from from making money, who they were killing, they they would actually receive the morning star instead. They would actually receive victory instead. And that's it. So this is a church that was, first of all, compromised. Now, I was stressed this week a little bit because there is compromise written all over this letter, I think we can agree about, right? It's written all over this church. But I talked so much about compromise last week, if you were here. It was like the whole point of the sermon. I'm like, God, I can't go in front of these people and talk about compromise again. Not not two weeks in a row. They'll they'll be bored. They'll they'll wonder, does he not have any new material? What what am I going to do? And then I thought, do you think that you talk about something and everyone's like, I've heard you loud and clear. I'm going to go home this week and course correct my life. Lesson learned. Don't need to hear it again. And then I'm going to come back for something new that I'll immediately fix in my life. (laughs) Probably not. That's not how I digest teaching. So I ask again, this church was walking in compromise, sexual immorality, flirting with paganism for their own comfort. You might not have the same issues with paganism this morning. I don't know. But as you sit here, is your life compromised in any way this morning? I want you to keep pressing into that question again. That's first. Then really the main problem, the main issue Jesus has with these Christians is what they tolerate. 
And so as a church last week, I said, as your spiritual life goes, so goes the church in a sense, right? Today, I'm here to tell you that whatever you all will tolerate, so goes the church. If you know that kind of in the community that is your Bible study, in the community that is your small groups, there's all sorts of sin um, among the people in those groups. I'm talking about unrepentant sin, and you're just ignoring it. You're tolerating it. You're tolerating it. And I don't want you to judge, condemn, belittle the people doing it, but do you lovingly confront sin? Do you lovingly confront ungodliness when you see that? That's all it is. Do you do that? Or do you tolerate anything? Anything goes. Do you live and let live no matter what? No matter what. If that's the case, what will become of our little church? As your holiness goes, so goes the church. And that holiness is kind of a group project, Jesus tells us. Jesus lets a church have it for tolerating sin. What will we tolerate here at the table? Michelle, you can come up. We take communion every single week here at the table. We remember Jesus and how he gave his life as a ransom for us so that we might receive through him the forgiveness of sins so that we might experience resurrection one day and life in the age to come. And we remember that Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and after he gave thanks, he broke it saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in the same way, after supper, he took the cup again, giving thanks. He said, this is a new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. So this morning, as we prepare to take communion, maybe just take some time to sit and think, is there something here that I'm tolerating? Something here that I don't think is right? Something that a Christian or Christians in my sphere are doing that I know that I know they shouldn't be doing? that the Bible makes clear they shouldn't be doing, something that, that maybe God could use me to help rescue them from. If I would just say something, that, that I could just love them by saying something. Is there something like that that comes to mind now? And if there is, ask God to give you the courage and the grace not to just tolerate it, but to lovingly confront it. Doing that will make our church the best church that it can be. And then when you're ready this morning, when you're ready to, to get up, you can get up, walk over to the communion table, take the bread, dip it in the cup. That's how we do it here. And, and as you take it, remember that no matter what you've tolerated or no matter what way you've been compromised, living a compromised life, whatever sin you're struggling with even this week, even as you sit here this morning, if you're in Christ, he died for you and he rose again and you will spend forever with him, free from shame and guilt. Communion can be found towards the back on my left. We have gluten-free communion towards the back on my right if you need that. My friends Randy and Rachel will be uh, up on either side of the room to pray for you if there's just something that you need prayer for this morning and you just want somebody to come alongside of you, I'd encourage you to do that. You can, I'm going to pray and then you can take communion whenever you're ready. Father, um, I pray that this little church that I'm so grateful for, that I've found such a family in, that, that it would not be one of compromise. It would not be compromise to, to trying to please you and a culture that doesn't love you, but just completely devoted to you. 
And I pray that we would be a church that doesn't tolerate unrepentant sin among Christians. Not out of a sense of self-righteousness or superiority, but completely out of, uh, out of a love, a burden of love for one another. Would you give us that, that burden in our hearts to, to talk to people when we see that in their lives? And, and just going back to what I said at the beginning, God, for, for not only that, but just the, a burden to tell people when we see good things all over their lives, to tell people what we see in them, the way that you tell these churches what you see in them. Use us to strengthen and encourage and empower one another. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to our Sunday service. If you're interested in joining us in the future, you can find us at 17766 Cleveland Avenue Northwest on Sunday mornings at 10. Additionally, we host a meal every first and third Sunday after service in order to fellowship with one another. Visit aseatforyou.org for more information. We hope you'll join us next week. Go in peace.